Section 21 of A Commentary on the Epistle to the Romans by John Calvin, translated by Francis Sibson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Romans 15, verses 1 to 33. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbour for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but, as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. Paul shows that the greatness of strength in which some believers surpassed others was conferred upon them for the purpose of their being enabled to assist the weak, lest they should fall. As the strong had made a greater progress, therefore, in the knowledge of God, they had no cause to be dissatisfied because they had to undergo a heavier burden. For as God intends the more enlightened and advanced in doctrine to be employed in instructing the ignorant, so he entrusts to those on whom he has conferred superior strength the task of devoting their powers to the support and protection of the weak. All the graces ought thus to be mutually communicated among the members of Christ's body. Every believer, therefore, is laid under greater obligations to support the weak in proportion as he is endowed with greater power in Christ, his head. Paul means, by observing that a Christian ought not to act for his own pleasure, that his zeal and labour should not be directed merely to gratify himself, as is the character of those who, resting satisfied with their own judgment, neglect others with indifference and unconcern. This advice suits very well the present subject, for nothing impedes or retards more offices of kindness and condescension to others than the mere following of selfish plans and gratifying of private affections, while the care of others is neglected in consequence of too great devotedness to self-interest. Let every one of us. Paul informs us that believers are mutually obliged to each other, and it is our duty, therefore, to satisfy and strengthen every attention and regard, and we ought to adapt ourselves without reserve or excuse to the necessities of our brethren, when we can do it to their edification according to the word of God not content therefore with our own judgments and not gratifying merely our own desires we ought on all occasions and times and in all circumstances to use in the first place every exertion and leave no efforts untried for the purpose of affording our brethren every satisfaction while we are thus desirous to adapt ourselves to the wants of our neighbours we ought in the second place to keep our minds fixed on the lord and promote the spiritual edification of believers as the great end and design of all our kindness, benevolence, and courtesy. Since a large portion of mankind can only be gratified by indulging their inordinate affections, if you wish to ingratiate yourself with them, their folly and vices must be gratified, while their eternal salvation is neglected. Your attention must not, therefore, be directed to the advancement of their spiritual welfare, since they will rest satisfied with the indulgence of their destructive and ruinous propensities. You must not on this account study to please those whose only gratification consists in the pursuit of iniquity and vice. For even Christ pleased not himself. If it is the duty of a servant to refuse no office which his master is prepared to undergo, it would be the height of absurdity for us to wish to exempt ourselves from the necessity of bearing the weaknesses of others, to which Christ submitted, in whom we glory as our Lord and King. For he laid aside all regard to himself, and devoted all his time, his talents, his influence, and zeal to the lost race of Adam. The whole of the ninth verse of the sixty-ninth psalm applies to Christ. For the zeal of God's house hath eaten him up, and the reproaches of them that reproached God have fallen upon him. 
christ it hence appears glowed with so great a fervour for the glory of god and was influenced and impressed with so great a desire for advancing the kingdom of the lord of hosts as to forget himself and to be lost and absorbed in this one thought and feeling the messiah so completely devoted himself to the lord that his mind was pierced with grief as often as he beheld the sacred name of god reproached by wicked men the second part of the verse which relates to the reproaches of god admits of two senses it may either imply that christ was as much affected with the reproaches cast upon god as if he had been reproached in his own person or he felt as much grief when he beheld the lord of sabaoth dishonoured as he would have done had he been himself the author of such shameful reproaches should christ reign in us as he ought to rule in his faithful subjects this same feeling will powerfully influence our minds and every dishonour done to god's glory will torment us as much as if our own bosoms were filled with such reproaches of the most high away with all those whose highest ambition is to obtain the greatest honours in the roman hierarchy which dishonours the name of god with every kind of reproaches tramples christ under its feet rails in reproachful language against the gospel itself and persecutes it with fire and sword it is indeed unsafe to receive such honours not from the despisers merely but the very reproaches of christ for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope now the god of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to christ jesus that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify god even the father of our lord jesus christ for whatsoever this is an application of the example adduced by the psalmist to prevent any of his readers from imagining that his exhorting us to imitate christ was too far-fetched the apostle indeed here confirms his wisdom in quoting david and adds that there is no part of the scriptures which may not contribute to our instruction and to the forming of our life and manners this beautiful passage shows us that the oracles of god contain nothing vain or unprofitable and the assiduous study and perusal of these records of unchanging wisdom contribute to advance our piety and holiness of life let us therefore labour most assiduously in learning the contents of the book of god and never forget it is the only writing in which the creator and preserver of heaven and earth condescends to converse with man it would be a reproach on the holy spirit of truth to imagine he had taught us anything whose knowledge might not be of use to us and let us ever remember that his instructions tend invariably to the advancement of our piety notwithstanding paul is here speaking of the old testament yet the same opinion must be entertained of the writings of the apostles for if the spirit of christ always resembles itself we can entertain no doubt of his adapting his doctrine to the instruction of his people now by the apostles as he formerly did by the prophets this passage affords a complete refutation of those fanatical spirits who boast of the abolishing of the old testament as if it had no relation and was of no use to christians what shameless impudence is it to endeavour to turn aside the attention of christians from these holy books which according to paul's testimony are designed by god himself to promote their salvation the additional part of the verse that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope does not include all the parts of that usefulness which is to be derived from the word of god but gives only a brief statement of its chief end and design for the scriptures are chiefly devoted to the object of forming our minds to patience of strengthening and confirming our comfort of raising us to the hope of a better even an eternal life and of keeping our meditation and contemplation fixed on that glorious kingdom 
I have no objections against translating comfort by exhortation, but the former agrees better with the nature and character of patience, because the latter springs and emanates from the former. For we are then at last prepared to endure the billows of adversity when God smooths them by his own comfort. For the patience of believers is not that unfeeling apathy commanded by the Stoics and philosophers in the heathen world, but that meekness and quietness of spirit by which we willingly and cheerfully submit ourselves to God, while all things are rendered sweet and pleasant to us by the taste and sense of his fatherly goodness, kindness, condescension, and love. This patience so cherishes and sustains peace in our hearts as to prevent us from fainting. Now the God of patience. God is thus denominated from the effects produced by him, and which were on a former occasion attributed to the scripture from a very excellent but different reason. God is indeed the alone author of patience and comfort because he inspires both these graces into our hearts by his spirit. Yet he uses his word as the instrument for accomplishing this object for god first teaches us by his word what true consolation and patience are and he afterwards inspires and engrafts the doctrine thus taught in our hearts minds affections and wills paul now turns from admonishing and exhorting the romans to the performance of their duty and has recourse to prayer for he was well assured that no dissertation of his own concerning duty could accomplish anything unless god by the internal operation of his spirit should perform what he had spoken by the mouth of man the whole object of the Apostle's prayer is to bring the minds of the Romans to true union of spirit and to make them harmonize with each other. He shows at the same time this bond of unity to consist in their being of the same mind according to the will of Christ. Every conspiracy, combination, and union out of God is misery, and whatever alienates our affections from the truth is out of God, and to make our union in Christ still more desirable, Paul points out its great necessity, since we cannot glorify God truly unless the hearts of all believers unite to celebrate his praise, and their tongues also sing one joyful hallelujah to his glory. Let none dare to boast that he will glorify God in his own way, for the fountain of love sets so high a value upon the unity of his servants that he will not suffer his glory to be sounded in the midst of the din of discord and contention. This one thought, our harmony in praising God, ought to silence forever the madness and wantonness with which dispute and controversy are carried on by too many at the present period. Wherefore, receive ye one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles, and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, Rejoice, ye Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. And again Isaiah saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles trust. Wherefore receive ye one another. In strengthening his exhortation, Paul clings to the example of Christ. For the Messiah embraced not one or two of the brethren, but all at the same time, in such a manner as to show we ought to cherish each other if we are desirous to remain in his bosom of infinite love. We shall finally, in this manner, confirm our calling, if we do not separate ourselves from those with whom we are united by the Lord. The sentence, to the glory of God, may relate either to us only, or to Christ, or to both conjointly. I take it in the last-mentioned sense, 
as Christ has illustrated the glory of the Father by receiving us all to his grace when we stood in need of mercy, so we ought to establish and ratify the union and harmony which we have with Christ for the purpose of magnifying the glory of the same God. Now I say that Jesus Christ... Paul now shows in what way Christ embraced us all, where he leaves no difference between the Jews and Gentiles, except his having first been promised and in some measure peculiarly destined to the Jewish nation before he was manifested to the Gentiles. But he shows there was no difference between Jews and Gentiles in what was the source of all their disputes, for Christ had collected both of them from their miserable scattered state, brought them, when thus assembled together into the kingdom of his Father, to form one flock, one sheepfold, one shepherd paul hence infers that it is proper for them to continue united and not to despise each other since neither of them was contemned or neglected by christ he therefore first speaks of the jews and states that jesus was sent to them for the purpose of fulfilling the truth of god by performing the promises given to the fathers and it is no mean or trifling honour that christ the lord of heaven and earth was clothed with flesh for the purpose of becoming a servant to procure their salvation for he has conferred upon them a great honour in proportion to the low state of humiliation in which he was placed on their account paul assumes this as an acknowledged and undoubted principle so that we have greater cause to feel surprised at the impudence of certain fanatics who do not hesitate to confine all the promises of the old testament to the body to time and the present world paul to prevent the gentiles from claiming any excellence to themselves greater than that of the jews expressly declares the salvation procured by christ to have been the peculiar privilege of the jews according to covenant because by his coming into the world he had fulfilled the promise formerly made by god the father to abraham and had thus become the servant of the jewish people the consequence follows that the ancient covenant was really and in truth spiritual although annexed to earthly types and figures for the fulfilment of the promises concerning which Paul is here writing must necessarily be referred to everlasting salvation. To prevent the cavil that, since the covenant itself was given to Abraham, salvation has only been promised to his grandchildren and posterity, the apostle expressly confines the promises themselves to the fathers. The power, therefore, and virtue of Christ himself must either be confined to earthly and bodily blessings, or the covenant made with Abraham extended farther than merely fleshly enjoyments and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Paul dwells a little longer in proving the mercy shown to the Gentiles. The first quotation cited by Paul is certainly taken from Psalm 18.50 to Samuel 22.50, where it is an undoubted prophecy concerning the kingdom of Christ. Paul also proves the calling of the Gentiles from this circumstance, that the confession of God's glory among the Gentiles is there promised for we cannot truly preach God except among those who hear his praises while they are sung in the congregation of the righteous. God's name, therefore, cannot be celebrated among the heathen without enduing them with the knowledge and conferring upon them the communion of the people of the Lord. For the praises of God cannot be proclaimed except in the assembly of the faithful, whose ears are capable of hearing the joyful sound of the gospel. Rejoice, ye Gentiles, with his people. I do not agree with those who consider this quotation to be taken from the Song of Moses, for the Jewish lawgiver intends, in that part of his writings, rather to strike terror in the adversaries of Israel than to invite them to the participation of one common joy. I take it, therefore, from Psalm 67, verses 3 and 4, where the psalmist says, Let the people praise thee, O God, let all the people praise thee, for thou shalt judge the people righteously and govern the nations upon earth paul added with the people of god for the sake of explanation 
for the psalmist indeed unites in that passage the heathens with israel and invites both equally to join in rejoicing which can only take place where god is known praise the lord all ye gentiles this is a very appropriate quotation for how could a people wholly ignorant of the greatness of god offer praises to his name they could no more do this than call upon his name with which they were altogether and entirely unacquainted it proves therefore in a conclusive manner the calling of the gentiles the reason assigned by the psalmist that we should thank the lord for his mercy and truth gives additional force to paul's reasoning psalm 117 verses 1 and 2 again isaiah this prophecy isaiah 11:10 is the most distinguished of all yet adduced for the prophet in that passage comforts the small remains of the faithful when their affairs were in the most deplorable and almost desperate situation by stating that a branch should come out of the dry and dead trunk of the family of david and a bough which would restore the people of god to their former glory should flourish from a despised root the description of the prophet manifestly shows christ the redeemer of the world to be the branch which will be lifted up as an ensign to which the gentiles will seek for salvation paul translates the expressions of the prophet stand for an ensign of the people by the word rise which implies the same sense and points to the distinguished eminence and conspicuous appearance of the lord jesus paul translates seek by trust since in the usual language of scripture to seek god is to trust in him the calling of the gentiles is confirmed in this prophecy since christ is said to be raised up to them as a sign who reigns in the midst of believers alone and this cannot take place without the preaching of the word and the illumination of the spirit the song of simeon corresponds with this passage from isaiah hope in christ is a testimony of his divinity now the god of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the holy ghost and i myself also am persuaded of you my brethren that ye also are full of goodness filled with all knowledge able also to admonish one another nevertheless brethren i have written the more boldly unto you in some sort as putting you in mind because of the grace that is given to me of god that i should be the minister of jesus christ to the gentiles ministering the gospel of god that the offering up of the gentiles might be acceptable being sanctified by the holy ghost now the god of hope paul concludes his remarks with prayer requesting the giver of all good to grant the romans obedience to all his commands this clearly shows that the source of all excellence never thinks of regulating measuring and determining his commands according to the extent of the powers or of the free will of mankind his orders with respect to our duties are given in such a manner that we never once think of preparing to obey them by any reliance upon our own powers the commands of the lord of glory can only be performed by a steady reliance upon the assistance of his grace and we are thus continually excited to feel a zeal and an ardour in our supplications to the throne of mercy the sense of this passage is the following may god in whom all our hope is placed fill you with a lively joy in your conscience with unity and harmony in your faith because your peace with god can never receive his approbation until you are united in the bonds of a pure unadulterated faith some understand the passage to mean that peace contributes to belief for we are then properly and justly prepared to place all our faith in god and his word when with calmness tranquillity unanimity and harmony we embrace the doctrine of the word of truth faith however is more properly combined with peace and joy since it is the bond of a holy and legitimate concord and union and the support and foundation of a pious joy although peace may mean the internal rest and tranquillity which we enjoy in god yet the context leads us to the explanation already given 
the apostle adds that ye may abound in hope because this grace is thus confirmed and increased in believers the power of the holy ghost means that all our blessings are the gifts of the divine goodness power implies and commends the wonderful and astonishing virtue by which the spirit of holiness love and consolation works and produces in us believers faith hope joy and peace and i myself also am persuaded paul by this concession is desirous to conciliate the believers in rome who might consider themselves attacked and aggrieved by so many and such anxious instructions and admonitions he excuses his boldness therefore in assuming the character of a teacher and exhorter among the romans he assures them that his conduct in this instance arose from a sense of duty and not from any doubt of their prudence goodness perseverance or constancy by this conduct paul removes all the invidious feeling of rashness which might have been brought against him for intruding into an office which peculiarly belonged to another or for treating on subjects which did not pertain to his province paul manifests the singular modesty and holiness of his heart and feelings who was content and delighted to be regarded and esteemed as nothing provided the doctrine he preached acquired by such conduct increased authority the romans were distinguished for pride and arrogance even the very meanest and lowest of the people were puffed up by the very name of the imperial city hence they were dissatisfied with the instructions of a foreigner a barbarian and a jew paul had no wish to contend with this pride and conceit in his own private name and power he is desirous to soothe and subdue it in his character and office as an apostle of the meek and lowly jesus full of goodness filled with all knowledge kindness prudence or skill in giving advice are the chief characters of a wise and good teacher and instructor kindness inclines to assist the brethren by its counsels by gentleness and courtesy of language and demeanour prudence or skill in giving advice secures authority and the means of affording valuable and useful information to all who are prepared to listen to its instruction malignity and arrogance are so entirely and completely opposed to brotherly kindness and instruction that wanderers from the path of rectitude treat advice when given in such a manner with pride and contempt and are prepared rather to manifest the pride haughtiness and ridicule of contempt than to submit to correction from such a quarter harshness whether in language or the appearance of the countenance deprives instruction of its use and value a combination of kindness courteousness prudence and skill in business is highly necessary in giving advice the romans who were abundantly endowed with kindness and skill in giving advice were fully enabled according to paul to exhort and encourage each other without receiving assistance from any other quarter nevertheless brethren i have written the more boldly unto you paul that he may show the greatness of his modesty in the excuse which he offers for having given the romans advice says by way of concession that he had as an apostle confidently interposed in performing for them in this case a duty which they were able to do by their own skill and powers he adds that the boldness which he manifested on this occasion arose from the necessity imposed upon him by his office as a minister of the gospel to the gentiles and he could not therefore pass by those who belonged to the heathens paul exalts by humbling himself the excellence of his office he does not suffer his apostolic office to be despised but confirms the honour thus conferred upon him by ascribing it to the grace of god paul asserts that he had not assumed the office of a teacher but an admonisher whose duty consists in recalling to mind truths which were already known i prefer the translation consecrating the gospel to the version adopted at first by erasmus ministering the gospel paul undoubtedly alludes here to the sacred mysteries performed by the priest 
he makes himself a priest in the office of the gospel by offering those believers whom he secures to become servants of the most high as a sacrifice to the lord of glory in this way he is employed in performing the sacred mysteries of the gospel the priesthood of a true christian pastor consists in offering men whom they have brought to yield obedience to the gospel as sacrifices to the lord of hosts how different the conduct of the roman catholics who boast with great pride in their reconciling men to god by the offering of christ paul does not denominate the pastors of the church of christ simply priests by a perpetual title but he uses the metaphor on this occasion because he is desirous to commend the dignity and efficacy of his ministry every preacher of the gospel in the performance of his functions as an ambassador of christ ought always to keep in mind the end and design of his office namely the offering to god of souls which have been purified by faith erasmus afterwards corrected his first translation ministering the gospel and adopted in an improper and obscure sense the version sacrificing the gospel the gospel must be viewed as the sword with which the minister of the word of god offers men as victims and sacrifices to the king of glory he adds that such victims are acceptable to god and thus not only commends his ministry but affords great and distinguished comfort and consolation to believers who deliver themselves up to be consecrated as ancient sacrifices were dedicated to god by certain sanctifications purifications and washings so believers in christ are consecrated as victims to the lord by the spirit of consolation truth and peace and are separated from the world lying in the wicked one by the inward operations and power of the holy ghost for although purity of mind arises from faith in god's word yet because the voice of man can of itself accomplish nothing and is dead the office of purifying the believer belongs truly really and properly to the spirit of grace and love i have therefore whereof i may glory through jesus christ in those things which pertain to god for i will not dare to speak of any of those things which christ hath not wrought by me to make the gentiles obedient by word and deed through mighty signs and wonders by the power of the spirit of god so that from jerusalem and round about unto illyricum i have fully preached the gospel of christ yea so have i strived to preach the gospel not where christ was named lest i should build upon another man's foundation but as it is written to whom he was not spoken of they shall see and they that have not heard shall understand i have therefore paul after commending in general his calling with a view to inform the romans of his being a true and an undoubted apostle of christ breaks forth into the language of praise and shows he had not only undertaken but adorned in a very distinguished manner the apostolic office which had been enjoined him by the appointment of god he mentions his own fidelity to which he has steadily adhered in the execution of his office our appointment to an office is of little moment if we do not answer to our calling and give satisfaction in performing our duties the apostle does not commend himself from an ardent desire for securing glory and honour but that he might leave no means untried by which he might secure among the people at rome favour and authority to the doctrine which he taught he glories therefore in god and not himself and the design and tendency of the whole passage is to return lasting and solid praise to the lord of hosts his speaking negatively is a sign of modesty while it confirms the truth of his assertions the following is the sense of the passage truth itself affords me so copious a subject for glorying that satisfied with what is true i have no occasion to have recourse to false praise which others have a right to claim as their own perhaps too he wished to anticipate evil reports which he knew the malevolent were ready to rumour on all occasions and in all places 
that he therefore ushers in his remarks by observing that he intended to speak on subjects which were well known and fully ascertained to be true to make the gentiles obedient this sentence shows that paul intended to add weight to his ministry among the romans by pointing out the power and success of his doctrine signs prove that god by the presence of his own power had so afforded a witness to the preaching of paul and set a seal to his apostleship that none had a right to doubt his mission and appointment to be from the lord of the harvest word work and miracles are intended by signs and it hence appears that the meaning of the word deed is more extensive than miracles the concluding sentence by the power of the spirit means that the holy ghost alone could be the author of those signs and wonders and word and work in fine paul asserts that both by teaching and acting he had possessed great power and energy in preaching christ by which the wonderful efficacy of the almighty was made to appear miracles were also superadded and as seals certified and declared more fully that the hand of the lord was with our apostle by the nature extent and magnitude of the works which he performed after first stating word and deed he particularly specifies the power of working miracles thus luke twenty four nineteen christ is said to have been powerful in word and work in john five thirty six christ himself sends the jews to his own works as affording a testimony of his divinity paul does not simply mention miracles but distinguishes them by two different titles peter acts two twenty two calls what are here termed mighty signs and wonders miracles and wonders and signs these are indeed proofs and testimonies of the divine energy for the purpose of exciting and awakening the attention of mankind that being struck and deeply impressed by the amazing power of the lord they may at the same time wonder admire and adore the works of his hands they convey to us an important meaning and these signs rouse us to have a more full and extensive acquaintance with god the creator and redeemer of mankind this is a striking passage concerning the use of miracles which are calculated to excite in man a reverence and obedience to god thus mark sixteen twenty the lord confirmed the word with signs following and luke acts fourteen three says the lord gave testimony unto the word of his grace by wonders every power and every means therefore by which glory is sought for the creature and not for god the creator by which belief is secured for lies and lying vanities and not for the word of infinite truth evidently spring from the devil i refer the power of the spirit of god which is last mentioned by paul to the word to works and to miracles so that from jerusalem and round about unto illyricum paul adds as a testimony to the success of his ministry the effects which it had produced for the results of his preaching surpassed all human powers for what preacher unassisted by the power of god could have collected so many churches to christ paul says i have propagated the gospel from jerusalem to illyricum not proceeding in a straightforward course but visiting by a circuitous route all the intermediate parts of the country the greek verb translated fully preached means to perfect as well as to supply what is wanting and the verbal noun derived from it implies both perfection and supplement i therefore readily adopt the following exposition of the passage that paul diffused the preaching of the gospel by supplying the lack of others for he had disseminated the divine truth much more extensively than any of the other apostles or preachers of the gospel by whom he had been preceded yea so have i strived to preach the gospel because it was necessary for paul not only to prove himself a servant of christ and pastor of the christian church 
but to claim the character and office of an apostle with a view to secure the attentive audience of the romans he here lays down the proper and peculiar mark and distinctive character of apostleship the duty indeed of an apostle is to disseminate the gospel where it has not yet been preached according to the command of christ go and preach the gospel to every creature mark sixteen fifteen we must be careful in making this observation lest we adduce it as an universal example which ought to be peculiarly limited and confined to the order of apostles the substituting of successors to the first builders of the church of christ can be blamed by none for while the apostles must be considered the founders of the church the pastor who succeeded them ought to defend and also to enlarge and increase the building which these favoured servants of god have erected paul calls that another man's foundation which has been laid by some other apostle for christ properly speaking is the only stone on which the church is built one corinthians three eleven ephesians two twenty but as it is written isaiah's prophecy chapter fifty two verse fifteen confirms what paul had said concerning the sign of his apostleship for in isaiah fifty two ten the prophet when speaking of the kingdom of the messiah predicts that the lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our god it was necessary for the fulfilment of this prophecy that the knowledge of christ should be carried to the heathen who had never yet heard of his name a special command was given to the apostles for the performance of this great work and the apostleship of paul is manifestly established because in him this prophecy is fulfilled there is no foundation for perverting this passage by applying it to the pastoral office for we know that the name of christ must always continue to be preached in well-regulated and properly constituted churches where the truth of the gospel has been for a long period felt and acknowledged paul therefore preached christ to foreign nations which were wholly unacquainted with the principles of the gospel that the pastors of the church might daily and constantly proclaim with their lips the same doctrine after his departure in every place where he had sown the seeds of divine righteousness and truth the justice of this observation is clearly established since the predictions of the prophet isaiah in the passage here quoted by paul evidently relate to the commencement of the kingdom of christ for which cause also i have been much hindered from coming to you but now having no more place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come unto you whensoever i take my journey into spain i will come to you for i trust to see you in my journey and to be brought on my way thitherward by you if first i be somewhat filled with your company for which cause also paul excuses his conduct for not having visited the romans sooner since he had been appointed for them as well as the rest of the heathens paul therefore embraces this opportunity for making his apology to the romans and shows that in disseminating the gospel from judea to illyricum he had completed a certain course which was assigned him by the lord and had resolved on accomplishing this part of his apostolic labours not to neglect the romans he removes all suspicion which they might feel of want of due attention on his part to their spiritual interests and welfare by declaring and testifying his long-continued desire to accomplish this object a just impediment had prevented him from accomplishing his intended journey to rome at an earlier period but he now gives them hopes of a visit as soon as his calling will allow the argument taken from this passage to prove that paul went to spain is weak and inconclusive for it by no means immediately follows that our apostle went to that country because it was his intention to carry the gospel thither for paul only speaks of the hope which he entertained of accomplishing a visit to the spaniards but he might as other believers have done sometimes experience the disappointment of his expectations for i trust to see you 
Paul touches upon the cause of his long-continued wish and present determination to come to the Romans, that he might see them and enjoy a personal interview and social conversation with the disciples of Christ in Rome, and appear before them in his apostolic character and office, for an increase of the gospel is comprehended under the arrival and visit of an apostle. When Paul says, I shall be brought on my way thitherward by you, he intimates how much pleasure he promised himself from their kindness and benevolence, and this, as we have already stated, was the best and surest plan for securing their favour and esteem. For every person considers his obligation to another increased in proportion to the extent of the confidence with which he knows that a reliance is placed upon his assistance. For we regard it as a disgrace and inconsistent with all the feelings of humanity to deceive any one in the opinion which they have formed of our aid and kindness. The subjoined sentence, if first I be somewhat filled with your company, proves the reciprocal kindness which the apostle was desirous to cultivate, and it was of very great importance for the interest of the gospel that the Romans should be convinced of his entertaining this feeling. But now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints, for it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Archaea to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. It hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. For... If the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. When therefore I have performed this, and have sealed to them this fruit, I will come by you into Spain, and I am sure that when I come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. But now, to prevent the Romans from soon expecting his arrival, and considering themselves to be deceived, should he be detained longer than they imagined, Paul acquaints them with his present journey to Jerusalem, for the purpose of carrying the alms, which had been collected for the poor in that city, from Archaea and Macedonia. This duty, he observes, would hinder his immediate journey to Rome. He seizes this opportunity, and gradually proceeds to recommend this contribution, that he might excite the Romans by hints to imitate the conduct of their Archaean and Macedonian brethren. For, although he does not openly request the Romans to make a collection, yet by stating that it was the bounden duty of Macedonia and Archaea to adopt the course which on this occasion they had observed, he gently intimates the same duty to be required of the Romans, since they were in circumstances precisely similar. His open confession to the Corinthians proves this to have been his object, where, 2 Corinthians 9.2, he states, I boast of you to them of Macedonia, and Archaea was ready a year ago, and your zeal hath provoked very many. It was indeed an instance of rare piety that the Greeks, on hearing of the poverty of their Christian brethren at Jerusalem, did not consider the great distance by which they were separated from them, but in consequence of their union by the bond of faith they regarded Zion as not too far removed from Corinth, and relieved the indigence of the believers in that city out of their own abundance. The word contribution or communication is very properly used, for it very well expresses the affection and feeling with which we ought to assist the poverty of our brethren on account of the common mutual and reciprocal relation arising from the unity which exists among the members of the body of the church. Because the Greek pronoun, which means a certain contribution, is often redundant and does not add to the emphasis of the passage, I have entirely omitted it in my version. I have translated the Greek participle, which signifies ministering, by the verb to minister, since it seems to express more properly the meaning of Paul, for he assigns, as an excuse for not hastening immediately his journey to Rome, the just and useful business of supplying the wants of the saints, in which he was then engaged. And their debtors they are. 
every reader must feel convinced that the obligation here mentioned applies as strongly to the romans as the corinthians for the former people were as deeply indebted to the jews as the macedonians or inhabitants of corinth paul assigns also the cause of the obligation which was the receiving of the gospel from the jews and derives his argument from the less to the greater he uses this reasoning one corinthians nine eleven if we have sown unto you spiritual things is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things which are immensely much more vile and contemptible than the blessings of the gospel paul shows the value of the kingdom of heaven by declaring the heathens to be debtors not only to the ministers and servants of divine truth but to the whole jewish nation from whom these ministers had been descended the greek word here translated minister signifies to perform the duty assigned by the state and to undergo the burdens of the calling determined by providence on some occasions also it is referred to the performance of sacred duties paul i have no doubt meant by this term a kind of sacrifice to be offered by believers when they supplied the necessities and poverty of their indigent brethren out of their own substance for the duty of love which they owe is paid in such a manner as to be offered at the same time as a sacrifice of sweet-smelling savour to jehovah the king of glory paul however had a peculiar regard in this passage to the mutual satisfaction and recompense which could be claimed as a just debt by the jews from the heathens on account of the spiritual blessings flowing to the latter from the former who ought to repay them by temporal comforts when i have sealed to them this fruit i think paul here made an allusion to the custom of the ancients who secured and shut up by the seal of a signet their valuable treasures paul thus commends his fidelity and integrity and declares he will be as faithful a keeper of the money entrusted to his hands as if he carried it under a seal fruit indicates the yearly profit and revenue accruing to the jews as paul had just mentioned from the sowing of the gospel just as the field properly cultivated supports the husbandman by the fruit which it yields and i am sure that when i come unto you i shall come in the fullness these expressions admit of two explanations the first sense is that he would find an abundant fruit of the gospel at rome for good works the fruit of faith form the great blessing of the gospel since i am by no means satisfied with the interpretation which limits the meaning of this expression to almsgiving the second explanation follows paul for the purpose of making the romans more earnest in wishing for his arrival expresses a hope that he would not be unfruitful since a great increase of the gospel here called the fullness of the blessing or by a hebraism full blessing and which means the prosperous success and enlargement of the divine kingdom would be the consequence of his exertions this blessing depended partly upon paul's ministry and partly upon the faith of the romans he promises therefore that he would not visit them in vain since he would not uselessly throw away among them the grace which he had received but lay it out to a good purpose on account of the alacrity with which they were prepared to receive the gospel the former interpretation is more commonly received and more completely meets my approbation that paul on his account expected he would have his most earnest desires gratified by finding the gospel flourishing and prospering among them with distinguished success by the great holiness of their lives and their excellence in every kind of virtue he assigns as a cause of his desire the uncommon joy which he expected to derive from an interview with believers whom he would behold abounding in all the spiritual riches of the everlasting gospel now i beseech you brethren for the lord jesus christ's sake and for the love of the spirit that ye strive together with me in your prayers to god for me that i may be delivered from them that do not believe in judea and that my service which i have for jerusalem may be accepted of the saints 
that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God, and may with you be refreshed. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Now I beseech you. Very many passages prove the malignant and spiteful grudge entertained against Paul by his own nation on account of the false complaints and calumnies raised to ruin his character, as if he taught the forsaking of Moses and of the law. Paul knew how easily the greatest innocence may be oppressed by unfounded accusations, particularly among those who are hurried off by inconsiderate and blind zeal. The witnessing of the Spirit, mentioned Acts 20.23, occasionally forewarned him that bonds and afflictions abode him at Jerusalem. His trouble increased, therefore, with the extent of the danger to which he saw he was exposed. Hence proceeded his very great anxiety in commending his own safety to the various churches nor need we be surprised at his solicitude on account of his own life, since he knew its loss would be accompanied with so great a danger to the church. Paul testifies what trouble and care distressed his pious breast, what vehemence also appears in his calling God to witness, while to the name of the Lord he adds the love of the Spirit, by which the saints ought mutually to embrace each other. He ceases not, however, in the midst of so much fear and trembling, to pursue an onward course, nor is he so afraid of danger as not to be willingly prepared to undergo it. But he furnishes himself with divine remedies. He summons to his assistance the aid of the church, that by their prayers he may receive comfort, according to the Lord's promise, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Matthew 18.20, and again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. Matthew 18.19. And he beseeches them by Christ and the love of the Spirit that none might imagine what he commended them to do was slight or trifling. That is called the love of the Spirit in which we are united by Christ, because it is not of the flesh nor of the world, but proceeds from his Spirit, which is the bond of our unity since therefore to be assisted by the prayers of the faithful is so great a divine blessing that even paul himself that most chosen instrument of god did not think of neglecting it what sloth and indolence is it on our part who are misery vileness and nothingness itself to despise this powerful means of obtaining the smiles of omnipotence it is the height of impudence to take this passage as an occasion and handle for supporting the doctrine of the intercession of dead saints that ye strive together with me the version by Erasmus, to assist me in my labours, is not a bad one, but I prefer a literal translation because it is more emphatic. For the word strive shows the straits in which he was placed, and when he orders his brethren to assist him in this pressing difficulty, we see a proof of the affection which believers ought to feel for each other in their intercessory prayers. They should actually take upon themselves the person and character of their afflicted brethren, as if they were placed in the same difficulty and necessity. He points also to the effect which these intercessors are capable of producing, for, by commending a brother to the Lord, he takes a part of the burden upon himself, and affords him so much assistance and relief. And if our strength is placed in calling on the name of God, we cannot bestow greater strength upon our brethren than by invoking for their assistance the name of Jehovah. That my service which I have for Jerusalem... Paul's calumniators had been so successful in their false charges against him as to excite in his breast a feeling of solicitude, lest the present which he was carrying might not be very welcome from his hands, although it would be offered in the midst of such pressing want and necessity at a very convenient season. Our apostle's astonishing meekness appears from his not ceasing to labour for the temporal wants of the Jews, 
even while he entertained a doubt of his exertions being regarded with pleasure by those very persons whose wants he was endeavouring to supply. We ought to imitate his disposition of mind, manifested on this occasion, and never cease performing acts of kindness to those from whom we have no certain and well-founded cause to expect the least gratitude. Paul knew that saints also on some occasions might be hurried off by false accusations and induced to entertain an evil and harsh opinion of the conduct of some of their brethren. Our apostle persists in making honourable mention of those very believers, even when he certainly knew his character to be injured by their representations. The additional sentence, that I may come unto you, implies that this prayer would also prove highly useful to the Romans, since his being killed in Judea would prevent his exertions for their advantage and instruction. It was of importance also that he should come with joy, since, should he arrive among them in all the liveliness of hilarity and without one gloom of grief and sorrow, he would be enabled to devote all his time, all his attention, and all his pains and study with more animation and more activity to the promoting of their spiritual improvement. The expression refreshed or delighted shows how fully convinced he was of their fraternal attachment. The sentence, by the will of God, instructs us in the necessity of devoting ourselves to prayer, since God alone directs all our paths and all our steps by his gracious and unerring providence. Now the God of peace. The universal expression, with you all, shows that Paul did not pray to God for his presence and favour merely with the Romans in general, but for his guidance and direction of every individual believer in that city. The epithet, peaceful, must be referred to the circumstance of the passage, and means, may God, the author of peace, extend his preserving care to every saint in Rome. End of section 21.